6.30 Chad Afternoons with Jalen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad. Right now, keeping an eye as uh, details continue to develop in the Mingwangzhou case, uh, the Chinese tech executive has reached a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. government, and uh, that resolves the U.S. fraud charges against her, and it clears the way for Canada to drop its extradition proceedings. I can tell you she just arrived in a Vancouver courthouse where those extradition charges are expected to be dropped. Now, earlier today, she pleaded not guilty in a virtual court appearance in New York to multiple fraud charges. She, she was charged with bank fraud, wire fraud, conspiracies to commit bank and wire fraud more than two and a half years ago. And so the big question you might be asking is, okay, what does this mean? What does it mean, most importantly, for the two Michaels, Canadians Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who were detained in China just days after her arrest both charged with espionage and I'm also curious to know what this means for the China-Canadian relationship moving forward. Christian Luprecht is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University. He's been following this closely. Christian, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon. What does a deferred prosecution agreement mean? What, what does this mean going forward for her? So these agreements usually are meant for uh, companies and corporations that engage in wrongdoing, but they can be used against individuals. And so what this means is that the charges are entered into court. Uh, She pleads to the charges, but that the prosecution usually agrees to drop those charges on a set of conditions um, and a certain time period which the individual corporation needs to adhere to those conditions to ensure that those are met. In this case, we know that it's a four-year timeline. The conditions themselves have not been made public mm-hmm. um, at this point and may possibly never be made public, but it means that um, the Meng Wenzhou can get this case resolved somewhat in her favor, but most importantly, it means that she does not face at least immediate prosecution in a U.S. court of law and the prospect of a very long prison sentence. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, the opportunity for her by all accounts is that she'd be able to return home very quickly. And that was ultimately, I think, the objective here to get so. So this coincides with a with a change in U.S. strategy in 2018, something known as persistent engagement to try to go after rivals and adversaries. And so the objective here was for the U.S. to engage in what I call economic deterrence, trying to make sure you signal to Chinese corporations, in particular, and Chinese executives, that we know what you're up to, um, and we will find you, and we will get you if you don't comply with our expectations. Now, these were, of course, not U.N. sanctions. These were U.S. sanctions that were imposed. But it is meant to send a clear signal to corporations and individuals that have really acted with impunity uh, in the way that uh, in, in their corporate behavior. But it has also given license to a number of allies now to go after Huawei-related mm. matters. And that's also what the U.S., I think, wanted to achieve here is through this sort of um, Chinese water torture of every few months when Meng Wanzhou would show up 
Supreme Court making international headlines again, it gave license to allies and partners to say the United States has your back, you need to do something about bad behavior by this company. And you can see it this week, Lithuania, for instance, with its announcement that uh, uh, it believes that certain Huawei phones and other Chinese phones are compromised and <laughs> instructing their citizens to replace them as soon as possible. And so you're likely going to see more of that sort of action by allies and partners because now they know uh, the United States will have their back if they engage in actions against um, um, select Chinese corporations. Dr. Christian Lup- Lupark joining me this afternoon. Uh, doctor, what about, the, what about the two Michaels? What does this mean? I know we, we've been waiting to hear and, and you know, we've been, it's, it's been years now and there's been great concern and we don't know if uh, any Mm, any um, conversations had been had uh, you know if we do this you will 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 send you back uh, the two Michaels does this mean do you believe that they will be able to come home so both the uh, defense in the Meng Wanzhou case and uh, the Canadian government played the long game here there was always a good chance that she would end up being extradited because the threshold for extradition is reasonably low. Um, and so uh, I think the defense wanted to see how far they could try to forestall the case in Canadian courts. And when it became apparent uh, that there was a greater uh, risk of um, extradition, um, at that point, they started conversations with the Justice Department about a deferred prosecution agreement. And Canada would have been in on this plan B of a deferred prosecution agreement, but it meant the process had to play itself out in a Canadian court and that that would take a significant amount of time. So now that this process has resolved itself, uh, since China has always insisted that the two Michaels are not linked to the Meng Wanzhou case, we're not going to see immediate action, Mm. uh, but I would hope that um, at a reasonable point in the future we might see uh, both of them uh, probably found guilty in a Chinese court and then deported on a flight back to Canada. Uh, the other challenging queries, of course, is that of uh, Schellenberger, a Canadian who has now been convicted and is mm-hmm. sitting on death row on his second trial, um, and whether China will show some leniency uh, in that particular case as well. But the ultimate objective for the Canadian government was to avoid playing into extortion and Chinese hostage diplomacy. And I think playing the long game here uh, did work out in Canada favor rather than giving in to those voices that were persistently advocating for a quasi-hostage exchange because letting the, the rule of law take its course here uh, I think is working in the favor um, of uh, the two Michaels and of Canada's interests in the longer term. Can you give us an idea then of, of what that next you know that step would be to get you know the two Michaels get all three of them home is this something is, is it negotiations that the Canadian that uh, the Canadian government would be involved in or or would it mainly be negotiations, do you think, between the U.S. and China? So uh, the Chinese authorities with any country are notoriously unforthcoming when it comes to foreigners who are incarcerated uh, in their detention facilities. And so we will likely not see a lot of foray from China in terms uh, on, on these terms with regards to the United States or Canada. Rather, China will make a unilateral decision on its timing and on its terms how it might proceed with the two Michaels. And I think to that effect, it is going to watch uh, Canada's reaction over the coming days and weeks to see probably whether 
they can extort any more leverage out of the two or whether it can curry uh, diplomatic favor uh, by showing leniency. They likely won't be released simply because China decides to release them. China, as you point out, will likely be looking for either something in return, uh, which it is likely not going to get from the U.S. or Canada, or at a minimum try to get favorable diplomatic uh, coverage out of those cases. At a forum recently, uh, Ottawa's former ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, said uh, Canada needs to take a firmer line with an increasingly aggressive China, um, says that he hopes that the next strategy or the next, uh, the next government in Ottawa, the strategy they need to adopt a more robust engagement strategy, and that we need to stand up to that country. Can Canada do that? Do you expect that to happen? Well, Canada needs to certainly act in concert with allies, but there hasn't been a lot of concerted action on China among allies. It seems there's considerable collective action problems here. Uh, it's also not clear what exactly Canada could do in the Indo-Pacific because Canada has a relatively uh, modest footprint overall in the region, uh, and we have limited resources diplomatically on foreign policy, on defense policy, and our priorities are in the Arctic, are in Europe, are in the Middle East, rather than in the Asia-Pacific theater. And so in that regard, yes, Canada will try perhaps to take rhetorically a harder line. Canada mm -hmm. could also on certain policy items such as agricultural exports yes. take a harder line, but um, it, uh, it will probably will continue to try to muddle through rather than be as aggressive mm -hmm. as, for instance, Australia or the United States, uh, simply because um, of the way we need to balance our interests in other parts of the world. All right, Dr. Christian Luprecht joining me this afternoon. Always appreciate your time and our conversations. Thank you for this. My sincere pleasure. Have a lovely weekend. Yeah, you too, Christian. Uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht joining us this afternoon. He mentioned Australia. And, he, and so the former Canadian ambassador uh, to China said, yeah, you know what? We can learn a lot from Australia. They're not afraid to face China. Uh, will that happen? Hmm. Uh, Christian also mentioned agriculture. Um, Guy Saint-Jacques, who is the former ambassador to the country in this forum recently, said, hey, you know what? China needs our agricultural products. Uh, he also said that he sees a bright future for Alberta in terms of energy exports to China. Uh, he says the desire for Canadian products should give Canada some leverage in engaging with that country. Will it happen? We'll wait and see.